My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. Welcome here to a day where you get even an extra hour, but you guys are here like at lunchtime now, so I don't know if that's good for you or bad for you, but either way. Let's flip to Exodus 28. We'll be in parts of 28 and 29. I'll read, and then we'll pray. Uh, This is on page 68, and then we'll jump over to page 70 here, and the Black Bible's around you. Chapter 28, verses 1, uh, start with verse 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, to serve me as priests. They they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Let's skip over a page to 29, verse 44. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me. As priests, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize something that is true of the priesthood in which you're showing us here in Exodus, which is true of the tabernacle as you've shown in Exodus, which is true of every facet, but you're just repeatedly driving this point home that ultimately, more than anything, we need to be in the presence of your glory and your beauty. And Lord, that's actually what transforms us. That's actually what changes our hearts. It actually is what moves us to be all that we were meant to be. That is, to be fully human, to be fully alive, to be complete, to be whole. Lord, it's something that all of us are seeking after through career and relationship and through experience and through holding our lives together. Oh Lord, if I could be open, and I'm sure many of us, if we were, had the opportunity to do, could say the same. Lord, I'm struggling to hold things together. I need you to hold me together. And I need to be in your presence. And Lord, I, I imagine that's the prayer of a lot of us here this morning. So I pray, Lord, you would answer that in your spirit through your son, Jesus. Because that's what we ultimately need, is to experience your presence. And so give us that right now. Again, we pray that in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know me uh, well, you know that one of the most defining uh, works of somebody who I've 
grown uh, from their words and their encouragements and their reflections on life and uh, the holiness of all things uh, is John Mayer. And uh, I regularly uh, have not only sat in his presence through his albums and uh, listening to music, but also being literally in his presence by uh, going to the, every time he comes into Indy, whether, you know, at one, I think I started going with his Verizon, it was Deer Creek before that, it's Ruoff now, it was Klipsch at one point, but wherever they call that venue out there in Noblesville, I go regularly to go out and see his presence. And uh, the most uh, recent, uh, well, I guess this was a few concerts back now, uh, not, not that, that he's been in town, but uh, the last one that I went to, uh, I was out there on the lawn uh, in, again, whatever it is now, Ruoff Center or whatever it is, and uh, I was uh, just starting to enjoy the opening song, Queen of California, well chosen, and uh, I'm sitting there just singing along, enjoying the vibes, and this woman comes and starts speaking to my wife, uh, and I was just trying to block her out. She was, you know, harsh in the, harsh in the mellow, and uh, so I was just there enjoying the time. Uh, and enjoying John Mayer and all of his glory. And all of a sudden, I hear this woman say to my wife, how would you like to sit in the front row? To which we turn to her, and she's holding two tickets, two entrances into the Holy of Holies. (laughs) And so I don't even think I thanked this woman because I just was afraid she was going to revoke this offer. So we just grab them and run. And we get into the seated area and I show them to her and it, or the person who's waiting there is, you know, the security person. And I'm like, are these really going to work? Is this just some person who got these out of the trash or what is this? I mean, I'm like trying to read the ticket to see if they're actually real and if they're for the date, but I, my eyes are all blurred and I can't. And so I just give them to them and then they start escorting us forward. And eventually I like say like when they say front row, they mean like, front 10 rows or front five rows or front three rows, but eventually, lo and behold, they take us to front, not center, but just off center, audience right, stage left, which was John's soloing spot. So it's where he would come over and melt everyone's faces, but my face receiving the full grace of glory and beauty and being transformed. And I tell you this for this reason. Because I think back to that experience, and I think that woman is a good example of what it is to be a priest. Because I don't know what you think of when you think of the word priest or think of that concept. Maybe you think of, uh, if you have a high church or a Catholic background, somebody who wears a collar and receives confessions of the celibate lifestyle and is committed to the works of the church. And that's, I guess, one form or version of a modern priest. Or maybe you come from a more secular background. And you think of maybe all of that, but you also have a level of, of uh, just scorn or, uh, or uh, just looking at with a level of that because of recent history. There's a predatorial vibe, and that's something people have abused power and abused and, and uh, are abusers and things like that. Regardless of what you think of when you think of priest, ultimately I've tried to define it as this way. A priest ultimately is someone who holds on to God and holds on to the world stands in between and tries to bring two things together as a mediating power. And so ultimately, when you read Exodus and you read the setup of the priest and you read about ornate robes and washings and anointing with oil and sacrificing of animals and sprinkling of blood, you say, like, this is weird. This is maybe even grotesque. And you're like, I, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to, like, like process this for my life. You say, well, 
does this have to do with me and my time? And a lot of times we just skip this when we read. I'd argue it has everything to do with your life. Because we live lives of self-sufficiency. We live by ourselves often, even if that's like you living literally by yourself, or maybe you living with uh, just your spouse or just your family. We live lives of isolation. We self-serve, we self-promote, we depend on ourselves, we defy our limits because it's easier to do something myself than to depend on somebody else to come through for me. If you want something done right, you do it yourself. But there's one thing you cannot do yourself. I'd argue many things, but for the purpose of this morning, you can't enter into the presence of God by yourself. Ultimately, you need a mediator. You need someone to stand in the gap to be able to bridge for you and bring you into the presence of God, which is important because as we discussed a few weeks ago when talking about the tabernacle, the presence of God is ultimately what you most long for and desire. That you long to be in and to be full of the glory and beauty of the presence of God. I mean, we seek presence in every single way. I sought it in the being near to John Mayer. You seek it in being near to people and relationships. I mean, again, a couple of weeks ago, we said if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship with someone, you long to be eventually reconnected to their presence. And if that's true of somebody who you're just connected to in relationship who's human, how much more is that true of your creator and sustainer and all-powerful and all all-glorious and all-beautiful God. And so I want to take the ideas of what's going on here in the priesthood where they're laying out garments, they're laying out sacrifices, and they're, they're laying out all these ways in which these people, Aaron and his sons, are going to bring the Israelites into the presence of God. And I just want to make a few observations for how this applies to our life and our time. And the first observation is just this. The priesthood was about a mediator bringing you into the presence of God to be made complete and whole by his glory and beauty. And you see that in these verses where a lot of it is just like dealing, the whole first chapter is really just dealing with clothes. And it seems odd, but then you see exactly what the purpose of these clothes are. And if you look here again in verses 1 through 3, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and your sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they will make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Ultimately, these garments were meant to reflect glory and beauty to the people. If you look through of what gets made and how it gets made, it's all the same materials that they make the tabernacle, which again was a tent where they would be able to experience the full presence of God in and that these priests who were to enter in were supposed to clothe themselves with the same materials to make the tabernacle and they were supposed to be walking embodiments of the tabernacle before the people. And again, these people are walking around in deserts and so what everybody else is wearing is just like, of course, you know, clothing that's wearing out, that's being covered in dirt and dust and blood and all these things over walking through the desert over years and years and years. And that was meant to be a juxtaposition when they make these pure white and radiant and blue and purple and scarlet garments to reflect in the distance of that the beauty and the glory of God. 
Because ultimately, that is what the people were going to be transformed by. Because, because God is ultimately glorious. I mean, that's been the repeating theme that we've talked about at nauseum and we'll continue to talk about in the back half of Exodus because that's something that God is trying to drill home with everything that he's trying to show. Hey, I am glorious. And I love how Psalm 33, 6 through 8 says it. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you a little bit by bit. Or Psalm 33, 6 through 8 first says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And again, this is like a concept that we've heard about so much about God making all things just through the word of his mouth that we kind of just get desensitized and sterilized to it, which is so sad because ultimately it's about God making everything we see. I mean, just take one facet of creation. Take the Rocky Mountains. And whether you've been to the Rocky Mountains or not, you probably primarily associate them with the state of Colorado. Because that, of course, is where many of the great ski ranges and hiking ranges are. And so if you go to Colorado, you're going to maybe spend the time at one area of the Rocky Mountains. And it's going to be grand and marvelous. And you take hours hiking up to the highest heights and looking out. And that's just one range. And then you think about all the different, I mean, not even one range, it's just one face of a mountain. You think of all the different faces of that mountain that you're on, and you think about that range and all the ranges that are in Colorado. And then you think about not only just the ranges that are in Colorado, but the fact that the Rocky Mountains extend across Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, Montana, and on into Canada. And God did the amount of effort that you order a quarter pounder with cheese as he did to create all of them. And they spring up and they cover the world. And not only that, but all mountain ranges on all continents, some that make the Rocky Mountains look like the Great Plains of Indiana. And he makes all of this. And not only that, that Psalm 33 ultimately isn't even talking about mountains. It's talking about all the hosts and their, uh, the heavens and their hosts, which is the Bible talk. We're talking about space and stars. It means talking about bodies of creation that would dwarf mountains, in fact, would dwarf the earth. In fact, there's stars and other galaxies that would dwarf our entire galaxy. I mean, we now have studied enough stars to know that there exist stars that if the earth were a golf ball, you could fit enough golf balls into this star to cover the square footage of Texas twice. And it's just out there in the, in the heavens, it says, just reflecting the fact that God has made this by exhaling. And he made all the oceans that we go to to see, and he takes all of them, it says in Psalm 33, it says that he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and puts them in the deep storehouses. It's like you taking the sheets off of your bed and putting them in the hamper. He takes not just one ocean, but every ocean. I mean, these are oceans that are filled with billions of fish and mammals large enough that could swallow your car without even chewing. And he makes all of it. And it's a reflection on God being glorious. And then also God is beautiful, which there's a lot of different ways to talk about beauty. I mean, again, you could talk about creation. You could talk about the Grand Canyon. You could talk about sunsets. I personally like just to reflect on the person of Jesus because I find him completely compelling. I mean, I see Jesus who comes eating and drinking with those who are far from God. He comes to a crippled man 
who'd been sitting crippled on the side of a pool, in this pool that he was trying to get into for years because it was supposed to have healing powers, but every time it stirred up and the, believe that the, the people believed the holding power, or healing powers were going, all everybody else would rush into the pool and this man would get crowded out. He just comes up to this man while everyone's rushing in the pool and he's getting crowded out again. He just bends down and he says, hey, do you want to be well? And he heals him. Or he goes to a little girl who's died and he bends down next to her and he says, hey, little girl, get up. And she does. And you see him come to a woman who's a social outcast at a well and sits next to her, befriends her, even asks her for a drink. I mean, this woman, nobody would have wanted to touch her because of how unclean she was. And he wants to share a drink with her. Why? Because he says, I've come to pursue even you. And then I see this man who as he's sacrificed for the sins of the world, as he's killed for the sins of the world, he's sitting there praying and loving and caring for his persecutors. God is both glorious and beautiful. And ultimately what you're supposed to do with that is you're supposed to fear him. Have a heart of fear, the Bible says. I mean, that's what Psalm 33 says. He says, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, in 2019 American culture, we don't love the idea of fearing God. That's not something that's overwhelmingly popular. And so we like try to like take the edge off of it. Like, well, when they say fear, they mean like honor or respect. The problem is, is that the Bible in modern translations that is very much so meant to bring it into our vernacular constantly decides to use the word fear when it means fear. And there's something about it that, yes, is maybe the, not the way of like you would fear a villain or fear somebody who is coming into your house to, to hurt or to take from you. But it's like the fear of being in the presence of something that is that glorious and that beautiful. I mean, again, all little illustrations just really kind of put this to shame, but I think of uh, when you go to the zoo and you go to the tiger exhibit, and it's the one where just the tiger, it's just glass that's in between you and the tiger. And around feeding time, the tiger just like paces back and forth and looks at all your children. And <laughs> as he's doing this, I like sometimes like to have that moment where I just, you know, find the spot and just get up to the glass and you put your face right eye level with him. And as he passes by, you have just that brief glimmer of your eyes meeting with his. And it makes every muscle in your lower body clench at the same time. Because you realize that, like, if not for this glass, this animal would be able to pounce, tear apart, and devour me within seconds. Or you think of the Grand Canyon. I know, more Western travel imagery for us today. You think of the Grand Canyon if you've been there, and it doesn't matter. You can go to any area where you just, like, look over the edge of something. And when I went to the Grand Canyon, you, know, you step over that rope that says, hey, you're doing this at your own risk, man. And you step over that, and you go to the edge of it, and you just have to look over the edge. So you just like scoot your foot slowly to as far as you're willing to go, and you lean, and you look over a drop that can go at some points over a mile down. And something about your body just like, it just like starts pulling you in. So you're like, you have to like hold back. You're like, as a, a human, you're like, I don't want to, but I'm just like, I can't just like stand normal right now because there's such a huge gap in front of me. And it's like standing in front of that, that all of a sudden you're no longer being foolish or, or playing around or being trivial around this because you realize this could destroy you. 
Not because, as we've been saying the last several weeks, because it's so bad. Because it's so good. It's so glorious. It's so beautiful that it could destroy you in a second. I mean, not to be overly cliche, because I know if you're Christianity, you've heard this quote a billion times, but my son is finally the age where we can start reading the Chronicles of Narnia with him, and we finally read, got to the point in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the children are learning about Aslan, who is the Jesus figure, and they're in this world of talking animals, and they're talking with the beavers, which makes sense in the context if you haven't read it. And they're talking with the beavers, and they find out that Aslan is a lion, and one of the children exclaim, oh no, is he safe? And the beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. All of that is meant to be communicated through the tabernacle, through these priestly garments, through these things that are meant to display the glory and the beauty of God. Why? Because God knows that the Israelites and you and I, more than anything, need to be overwhelmed by his presence. It's what changes us. So much of our angst and anxiety and fear and desire to be in control of our own situation, our own lives, is the fact that we find ourselves separated from the presence of God. Even as Christians, we find ourselves not regularly seeking presence of God. We find ourselves seeking media, seeking other things, seeking distraction. And in that reason, we find ourselves just as anxious and as torn up and trying to control our whole existence as everybody else. Because we don't sit in the fact that a glorious and beautiful creator and sustainer is holding us, is holding our lives together. That will change you. That will shape you. That will make you transformed into the image of Jesus. And so, ultimately, We can't bring ourselves into that presence. We can't do it ourselves. And here's why, and it's our second observation I want to make about the priesthood. In light of the glorious and beautiful God, uh, to enter into his presence, our sin has to be dealt with to be in the presence of God. Sin, there's a lot of ways to define sin. I don't know how you primarily define it. It's not ultimately, I would argue, a list of uh, things to do and to not do, that those very much so are a part of sin. But ultimately, it's a desire to be our own God, to be in control of our own destiny, to be the one who holds our lives together. Or somebody has once defined it as the human propensity to mess things up and to mess others up. And I don't have to work too hard, I think, in this day and age to prove or to hold on to a doctrine of sin because I think just ultimately... More so than ever, we all, everyone instinctually holds on to this idea that someone out there is doing something that you believe is wrong. Regardless of how they feel about it, they should stop. And ultimately, if we think about our own selves, we think, but there's things that I'm doing that are wrong. Regardless of what I think about it, I should stop. I, the illustration has been used before. 
of idea of like God judging someone who is not a Christian and God coming to them and saying like, well, hey, if you're not a Christian, you never read the Bible, you didn't submit your life to it, I'm not going to hold you to that, I'm not going to hold you to what you didn't submit to. I'm just going to take every conversation in which you told somebody, this is how people should be, this is what people should do, this is what it means to be a good person. I'm just going to take you to your own standard and see how you hold up to it. And so you get the idea of a priesthood where God says, hey, I'm going to give you a system in order to take care of sin, in order to be in my glorious and beautiful presence. And so you get chapter 29 where it's going to talk all about the priests washing themselves, ritualistically cleansing themselves of sin. I mean, it's just a continual sense of trying to clean and to remove all things that would, remind, that would be a reminder of death and destruction. And then beyond that, you have... Uh, all of the sacrifices, which involve the sacrificing of a bull for a sin offering, a burnt offering of a ram, which was a aroma moving up to God, just a, a sense of, a regular sense of, hey, we have a destruction of this ram that is providing a barrier to sin uh, or, and the holiness of God. We have a wave offering, which, I mean, there's another ram gets killed and then waved around. I mean, there's all these things going on, and we don't really have time to go into all the details and all the intricacies of what's going on in every single sacrifice. Ultimately, I want you to just take the moment to see this. All this is to communicate that sin is a huge deal in the presence of the glory of God. I mean, just think about how God communicates sin to people through the sacrificial system of sacrificing the animals. He involves all the senses. I mean, when you come to this animal and you're having it sacrificed for your sin, whether you're the priest or, or a person, when they're having a sin offering on their behalf, you put your hand on the animal's head. You touch the animal as they're killed. In the moment of impact, you hear the animal cry out. You see the animal start to bleed and the blood run all the way down the altar and the animal's life go out of its eyes. You smell the metallic nature of blood. It's meant to be an abundant communication of the grotesque and detestable and defiling nature of sin, of what you and I do when we regularly know there are things we do that we should not do or things we should do that we do not do and yet we continue to live in them. So God's going to say, okay, you're, you're going to be those who are going to put sin in the world, and we need to take care of it, because ultimately sin needs to be dealt with. And this system wasn't just to show you how bad it was, it was also to deal with sin. Because ultimately, sin has to be taken away. It has to be covered up. Because you, some people say like, okay, if sin is such a big deal to God, then why doesn't God just like forgive it? Why doesn't God just be like, hey, forget about the whole animal thing. That's kind of cruel. Like, okay, you sin. I just forgive you. Because that kind of feels like what I do. Like if somebody says like, hey, like I, you did something to hurt me, I just say like, hey, I forgive you. And then we just like go on without it. But here's the reality is that sin releases something out into the world. Maybe not something that you can see or feel or touch, but something very tangible gets released out when you sin. I mean, just think about uh, if you're familiar with Harry Potter. 
the concept of horcruxes, which is like this idea that a, one of the evil villain of Harry Potter, he divides his soul in two by murdering someone, and then he takes a piece of his soul and he puts it out into the world because there's just something about murder that he says that just divides the soul. If that's true of murder, he's like, well, of course that's true of murder. Like you're actually literally taking a person's life. Of course you're releasing something in the world. But just think about something much smaller. I think about the time I spent making fun of this kid in middle school because I felt vulnerable. I felt insignificant. I felt there were things that I needed to build my notoriety or my popularity on the ability to find somebody weaker than me and throw him socially to the wolves. And nobody died. But I think about just the ripple effect that's had in that kid's life as he's grown up and now to be an adult. I think about the effect it's had in my life as I continue to think about how I've scarred my soul by defaming the image of God in someone. Sin releases something. It has to be covered up. It has to be dealt with. And so God ultimately says, here's how you're going to deal with it. The innocent is going to die on behalf of the guilty. And that's the whole idea of why do you touch the animal's forehead? What's the whole point of that? It's because as an innocent bull or an innocent lamb or an innocent goat, whatever the sacrifice might be, is dying for you, you touch what is innocent, you who are guilty. And your guilt is transferred onto the animal. And what's transferred to you is the animal's innocence. So now that which was guilty is given this innocence so that now that which was innocent is given the guilt and then that will die in your place. It's the idea of guilt transference, which is wildly unpopular in the Western world. At least it was. I think we've like, had a history of thinking like, no, you're like, you get what you pay for, you earn what, you, you know, you make your bed, you sleep in it, you... Uh, reap what you sow and all that, like whatever you do, like you're responsible for the good or the bad or whatever it is, you know, like it's not, you know, responsible to other people or to those connected with you. It's ultimately an individual's responsible for their actions. However, the rest of history and most of most of the world sees much more of a sense of like, hey, your guilt is able to transfer to your family, to your nation, to all those around you. And I think we're getting there more and more too with just social media shaming. The sense of like, hey, if somebody says something or does something that is going to potentially bring guilt and shame to them, everybody like quickly just moves away to like, you know, send out something to say like, hey, I'm disconnected, I'm disassociated from that person because their guilt won't be transferred onto me. So more and more we're getting a concept for this, but ultimately the Bible is an understanding that, hey, there's an ability to transfer guilt and to transfer shame. In this case, it's going to be happened by an innocent animal being touched by a guilty party. And so, sin has to be dealt with, and that's the second reflection we see in the priesthood. And the third reflection is that the priesthood ultimately was not enough. So first, again, we are, uh, are transformed by a mediator bringing us into the presence of the glory and the beauty of God. Secondly, that sin has to be dealt with to be in the presence and the glory of God, but ultimately that it wasn't enough, this sacrificial system and priesthood. I mean, these priests, it say, were sacrificing every day on behalf of sin. 
It was a full-time job. I mean, Hebrews 10, verse 11, which Hebrews is just a reflection on the sacrificial system and and Jesus. And it says this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Every day he stands. Take note of that, particularly in comparison to how Jesus is going to react in just a second. So he stands repeatedly offering sin or offering sacrifices every single day. I mean, sacrifice again and again and again because sin doesn't stop. It is exactly like, and I don't know if this is going to be a reference that is going to be relatable or educational for you, but it's exactly like Newman and Seinfeld, where if you've watched Seinfeld, Jerry has this character or a, a friend, I guess you call him a friend, Newman, who's a U.S. postal worker. And at one point, Jerry says, you're a U.S. postal worker, aren't those the people that occasionally go crazy and kill everybody? And Newman says, sometimes. And they say, well, why is that? And Newman starts to, in that moment, work himself in the rage because he says, because the mail never stops. It's the publisher clearinghouse, and then it's the magazines, and then it's the bills, and the personal, and the thank you cards, and he continually works himself up to the point where you feel like, wow, he's just going to go postal right now, because of the sense that the mail keeps coming and coming and coming, and day after day, it never, ever stops, and he realized that, man, what was once going postal probably came from the idea of going priest, because you have these guys who are offering sacrifices day after day after day, because sin doesn't stop, so eventually, like at one day at Yom Kippur, like, man, Freddie's going to lose it today because he's been sacrificing every single day over the brokenness of sin because it doesn't stop. The people don't stop receiving guilt from sin because it never changes. All these sacrifices of transferring guilt and innocence never actually does the work of changing their heart. Not only that, the priests themselves that were clothed in beauty and glory of God ultimately did not reflect it inwardly. They had the outward clothing and appearance of it, but you see all throughout Exodus and Leviticus, the priests regularly leading the people away from God, creating golden calves, uh, disobeying what God has said, hey, here's how you're going to worship me explicitly. And so ultimately, the glory and the beauty of the priesthood wasn't enough, and the innocence of animals wasn't enough to actually deal with sin. Because taking all that sin... You need a truly innocent sacrifice in a truly glorious and beautiful priest. Which is where Jesus comes into the picture. Hebrews, again, is a complete reflection on the priesthood and how Jesus fulfills it as the actual priest, the actual true high priest, and the actual true sacrifice. Because Jesus has the ability, has the beauty, the glory, and the innocence to actually be able to cleanse sin. Not just forgive it, to cleanse it, to root it out. I think about Matthew 9 and Mark 5. There's a story about a woman um, who was ceremonially unclean because it said for years she had been bleeding just perpetually. And of course, if you read the law, you know that a woman... Uh, bleeding in this way, uh, ceremonially made her one who just would have to be stepping out and say, hey, I'm unclean, I can't be in the presence of God and the community, that there's something about uh, the the world of death and destruction that is on me. And so a woman 
uh, would need to step away to be cleansed and wait a period of time before she could re-enter into the community. And at any point in that time where she's being ceremonially cleansed, if she touches someone else, she makes them unclean. And this woman would never become clean because she was in a place where she was just perpetually bleeding. And so she hears of Jesus. And she hears him doing this ministry and him being glorious and beautiful and a healer. And she decides to sneak up to him in a crowd and touch him. To which Jesus then all of a sudden stops and says, who touched me? And she starts freaking out because she knows that most likely what's going to happen is this is where Jesus turns on her and says, like, you've touched me and you were unclean. Now I have to go and cleanse myself. Now I have to take time. I was ministering to people. I was healing people. And now you've taken me out of my ministry because you've touched me as someone who's ceremonially unclean. I mean, that's what the ceremonial law says. Dirt trumps cleanliness. Dirty trumps clean. I mean, that's why I don't buy white shoes because dirty trumps clean every single time. And so in this moment, Jesus is saying like, now I have to go cleanse myself. But instead he looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Because for the first time in human history, something dirty touched someone who was clean. And her being unclean didn't make him dirty. He made her clean. See, Jesus, being God himself, having not just the innocence, but the glory and the beauty of God, has the ability not just to forgive sin, but to actually cleanse it. And that's why John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, hey, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. That's why Hebrews 9, 1 through 14 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, that through the greater and more perfect tent, that's a reference to that tabernacle we've been talking about, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living thing? This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, hey, that whole system of the blood of an innocent animal can, yes, take away for a moment the sin, but it can't actually cleanse the sin within you and root it out of your heart. But Jesus, through the power of the beauty and glory and the innocence of God, can actually give you his clean heart. That you who are dirty touches him who is clean, and his cleanliness wins. And so ultimately, that means that Jesus has the ability to take away all sin, past, present, and future sin. We talked about a moment ago that the priests were standing every day offering sins. That's why it says when Jesus, after being sacrificed on the cross for the sins of the world, when he rises again and ascends to God, sits down at the right hand of the Father, as if to say, shop is closed to offering sacrifices. All sin has been sacrificed for. There's no more sacrifices that are needed or anything that's gonna be able to take away more sin all my sacrifice is now standing so that anyone who comes and claims my sacrifice, all their sin, your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, is done away with on the cross. 
also it says that God's presence is open. Again, in Hebrews, it's going to say like, hey, now that we've had a great high priest who sacrificed for us, let us now draw near to the throne room and, and boldly proclaim what we need, boldly ask because we have God who is, or we have Jesus who has sacrificed for us and cleansed us, so now we can be fully in the presence of God. You need a mediator to be in the presence of God, and you have one. Now you can do what all the Israelites and the people of the Old Testament, everyone could not do. You can enter into the presence of God directly, daily. Even right now, you can be in his presence. And that presence of being in God's beauty and glory and learning to live and sit in that has the ability to actually purify and transform you. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit says, hey, how do you actually be transformed? How do you actually deal with your anxiety? How do you actually deal with all which you need? You behold the glory of God by sitting in his glorious and beautiful presence. How does that look? What's the tangible nature of that? It looks like pursuing his presence in your mind, in your heart, in your deeds, like reflecting on him through scripture, through prayer, through spiritual formation, by coming together and bringing each other into the presence of God, by praying for one another, by encouraging one another, by regularly bringing us into his presence and allowing that over the period of time to actually change us. We enter into a grace-fueled growth and obedience. And so we come and we taste full forgiveness. We see his glorious beauty and that actually begins to change us. It's what we're preaching week in and week out, it feels like, as of late because there's a people that are regularly just like, hey, I'm the one who has actually been like in Christianity, but I just feel like I want to continue to be able to grow and to mature and to shape and to move. And so many of us find ourselves wanting to do that but have no time or space or place to actually be in his presence. And so this is part of it. Sundays are part of it. But it's a day in, day out saying, hey, I'm being shaped by all these things. I'm being shaped by my social media. I'm being shaped by my Netflix queue. I'm being shaped by these things. How do I be shaped by the presence of God? Because he has made all things the final sacrifice so I can be in God's presence right now. One way that we just tangibly reflect on the presence of God is through the act of communion here. And we end each uh, sermon and bring the high point of the gathering in communion because it is a reflection of the body of Jesus that has been broken for you and the blood of Jesus that has been shed to cleanse you. Again, not just forgive, but to cleanse you from sin, to give you his righteousness. So now you can enter into God's presence with the righteousness of Jesus. And so ways that we take, a way that we take is we take the bread, you come here, the station on the room, take the bread, tear it off, dip it in the cup. If you're a Christian and you are holding on to Jesus' resume for your righteousness, you're holding on to his forgiveness and his blood for your cleansing, then I invite you to come and take of this meal together. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to stay in your seat, not to bar you from something, but just to say, hey, if you're not holding on to that, then, then don't come and, and, and just participate in something that's empty and cold for you. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, but, but we don't want you to make you feel like you have to pretend by jumping up here and pretending with us. 
And so, uh, again, we invite you. There'll be gluten-free option up to my right and your left. And there'll also be members of the prayer team here over by the Connect table to pray for anyone, for any need. Uh, we'd love to just make this time not only a time to receive communion with God, um, but also prayer through his body. Let's pray right now. Father God, Lord, 